Hello and welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe, YouTube's favorite comic book channel. We are continuing our walk through 1990s comic book history with Wizard Magazine number 55. This is from March 1996. Things have turned, but uh, there may be hope on the horizon, Ed, because we are looking at a cover of Jim Lee's Fantastic Four, Marvel's Heroes Reborn, one of the big events I remember from that second half of the 90s. And... Uh, we're going to get into it with this issue and talk about chaos. This <laughs> issue was a lot of fun for me to go through. I'm looking forward to digging into it. And um, we'll kind of probably pick and choose as we go through some of these articles because some of them are definitely of greater interest to me than others. Absolutely, so. man. And uh, just before we really get started, I want to mention to everybody that we are coming to Heroes Con uh, in a couple of weeks as of this recording. And uh, Comic Book Christmas in July is the last weekend in July, uh, that is where we're all going to take our doubles and our extra comp copies as artists and creators, and we're going to stuff those into the free little lending libraries that are all over uh, our, our our cities and neighborhoods, man. So participate in that. Hashtag us in in uh, your posts when you put your fresh comics into those libraries, and we'll we'll spread the good word that way. One of the things uh, with this issue, Jimmy, count the goddamn Rob Liefeld ads in here. This is an amazing spread to me for those reasons. This is the first spread in the book. Most valuable real estate cost the most. You get Amalgam on one side, which was a huge hit. It was the number one book in, I think, 95 and 96 for, for Marvel DC. Almost no coverage of this in this issue, by the way, even though they're in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah, it pretty much happened. And then this is like the Roger Cruz. That's right, Roger uh, Cruz on your cover like there. Young blood characters and stuff. And he gets poached from, from Marvel pretty much by by uh you know he did his kayfabe his gilberg uh joe Matarera stuff and uh rob liefeld must have been like okay well if i can't get go joe mad i'll get the the joe mad clone yeah absolutely and look at this uh 90s desktop publishing design here with this lousy font <laughs> <laughs> it was a big deal when they started to create cursive fonts that could actually like connect together yes <laughs> It's funny to remember that stuff. There's a lot of that kind of stuff in here, man. Like in the letters page, uh, well, I won't put the cart before the horse. You have your look, your eyeball in the Garib Shameless uh, editorial. Mostly, I'm eyeballing his haircut in this picture. That's a ridiculous picture. He looks so happy in this photo, and I realize these things are mashups, but it just feels like he's so excited to have Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld back at Marvel. It's like <laughs> they're coming back to the salad days of Wizard with that with that kind of lead. <laughs> Um, I mentioned this in our in our warm-up ed, John Romita Jr. and I think Klaus Jansen on this Spider-Man ad, and I just watched a John Romita Jr. Spider-Man video this week. It was an image of Spider-Man being inked and looks just like this. That's like cool. the same costume and everything 28 years later. Funny to uh the more things change, the more they stay the same. Some of the ads are my favorite part of this issue, by the way. Yeah. Seeing the death ad, I really liked this series, like um, I, I came to Sandman later, but yeah. something like Death was something that would have been coming out, like maybe my freshman year of college, and I thought this stuff looked really great. The cover and the interiors of this just felt, I don't know, man, you know, like some of Vertigo's stuff I found very boring looking. Yeah. And with this, it just felt like cutting edge, like super good illustration. Yeah, it's Chris Bacciolo, and what's interesting is he's already doing um, Generation X, and he has a kind of you know, neo-anime kind of style in that. But in the Death series, he leans back into his more gritty, probably natural style. You know, like the Gen Generation X style, like, makes him money in the comic industry, but I feel like his natural 
style of drawing is closer to, you know, the stuff he was doing in Death. This is a fun, uh, we have a, a Caliber Comics creator here rebutting somebody who called the creators whiners yeah. in a previous issue. So pretty big uh, call out for that. Yeah, the the one other letter of note that was pretty cool was um, it was uh, talking about online forums and yes and uh how they were so stoked that they would be able to to find other people online to talk comics with and 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 i was i was here like i had nobody to talk comics with at all i had no computer either and the idea of like finding like-minded people um but the guy was disgusted it's all it's all bullshit talk it's all it's all spam fanboys it is also like I forget what it was, what the, what the day was. It was like either like Black Tuesday or like Black Thursday or something like that. And that was the date where they opened up those news groups online to the people who participate in America Online. So that like the intelligent discourse died that day uh, because it was all old nerds and stuff who That's were exactly what this is a report of that death. Yeah, and <laughs> and um. It, the the reply is is fascinating too because listen we, dude we grew up through this we're like our grandparents who could talk about when they first got their radios and shit like that but like I tried getting online having real conversations with people usually turns into caveman talk uh, but here's the funny thing to illustrate that like nothing has changed um, maybe it's just because online is still a new form of communication hopefully in time people will start talking or typing in full sentences we know that not to be true right yeah the the one difference with the the past you know 25 years of time is you know this guy's email address abyss quick like that's what is visible online when he's like you know in his chat rooms and stuff now the internet has existed for people's whole lifetimes and they are so comfortable using their proper given name to be abject pieces of shit and that's the difference because it was anonymous in terms of the name of the person back then you know your ip address all that stuff still existed but now people have no problem being vile and 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 attaching their name to it little joke aside of vampirella there yeah the bad girl stuff is still prevalent half of those mail entries were uh were the bad girl art but it's on the wane man uh they cite vampirella as being a genesis point of this bad girl idea and it's going to be stopping at issue like 25 that was that joe casada piece that we just saw uh the series is going to end and then they're going to play the the, min the mini series game where they just introduce a bunch of stuff yeah a lot of a lot of uh ways to have new number ones exactly again one of these trends that still fresh 28 years later it's true um Big doing a comic, an adaptation of From Dusk Till Dawn, the Tarantino Robert uh, Rodriguez movie, and uh, noteworthy for cartoonists because Trevor Von Eden is going to do layouts on that. And uh, maybe if that's uh, if you guys want to see that real bad, flood our comments because <laughs> I do have a copy of that. It's it's uh, so so, but it's kind of a noteworthy piece because I think Big is the company that ends up buying like Kitchen Sink Tundra eventually. I think I think that's connected so we're still on that wane man we're, when comics were crypto so so these these entities are, are getting involved in comics but they you know they must they must have got the the read the tea leaves a little late you know what i'm saying man because we had such big speculative years but this is not going to be the first you know big deal uh where, where some outside entity is going to do some licensing and things like that and on that anti-gravity room show 
that I always talk about. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about it a lot because it's from this time period and Trevor Von Eden and I think the ad, the adaptive writer uh, are interviewed in on that program about this. And, you know, it's it's cool to see Trevor Von Eden and hear him talk a little bit about art, but they really do just, you know, suck yeah. balls of, of Tarantino and Rodriguez. You know what's interesting here, though? Uh, there are two entries that I noted reading this issue about graphic novels. Different companies are talking about it, and this is one of them. You know, this says graphic novels will give the company better entry into bookstores as well as improving visibility in comic shops amongst the irregular customers. They're one, and I think it's the magic article later on that is the other one, but it's like that early, early mentions of, like, why a graphic novel format is uh, something to pivot towards. But here's the thing. Like, it still is that old, old version of what the graphic novel is, which is, a prestige format book because yeah. the price point is four or five dollars so it's 64 pages or so or i mean you have it i don't yeah, have it It might be 48 pages see yeah exactly so like it's at least a marketing term but it it won't be for a while until until we have like like the thick books barry windsor smith storyteller we did an episode on uh on that it's so ambitious what he's planning 40 pages 9 by 12 inches monthly yeah that's a lot and i mean i can't remember the schedule but he puts out i think a dozen issues yeah 11 or 12 issues in all and i think they come out if not monthly pretty close like it's not a 10-year project that's it's a year or two i would say well ahead of its time he didn't complete any of his stories uh it comes out well ahead of its time i think that it could be completely viable now uh and i think it would be completely supported now i think there's enough of an independent comic fan base that would support that, but it's nine inches by twelve inches. It's bigger. Than... That's the one that nobody will support. <laughs> well, I mean, saying they might because it'll be it'll be the hipster art kids uh, who, right. who who you know don't know about long boxes and shit like that, that. That might be able to put some money into the coffers for that. But um, you know, his ambitious thing. He had great name equity where Dark Horse was comfortable with doing that. But uh, if you get that last issue of Storyteller, you know all the all the stories are dangling. And there's uh, a little editorial in there where Barry Windsor Smith is talking about, you know, the, that this comic is just not viable. It's not making a dollar. Um, people aren't supporting it. Everybody hates the size. Yeah, I remember reading somewhere, too, and it might have been in that editorial about the price point of it, too. Which yeah. seemed like they weren't following the format of, like, this is what it's got. If it costs this much to print, this is what the cover price has to be. And it seemed like there was an arbitrary feeling of, like, well, we can't price it that much. Part of the reason they weren't... Uh, able to make that profitable and and who knows the support from retailers but cool book but yeah it's um it's too bad man it's it's a bad time to launch a an experimental book in 1996 because we're gonna see the shitstorm in this issue absolutely everybody talks about how bad comics are doing the world's dumb this feels like uh valiant calling in favors of like hey we bought enough ads from you guys get us an Run something and in the article is bob layton is gone on vacation that's it's the worst news item in any wizard uh, this is kind of wild. A publisher that claims to have rights to Miracle Man yeah. and going to do collections of Miracle Man. Um, I don't think those ever came out, but they did do a Sam and Max collection. And this is another one of those early graphic novel proponents. But boy, you hit your wagon to Miracle Man in 1996. I mean, you you're got, done. You got to mention the name of the company. It's called Marlowe and Company, I guess, or mm -hmm. just Marlowe. Um, I didn't know they did a Sam and Max, but... Uh, I took a look in the price guide, and Miracle Man 15 is still just an average book. It's it's worth a it's worth a dollar seventy five or something. And one of the one of the things that we were making note of while we do these Wizard episodes is paying attention to like when that price shift changes 
in the price guides because now that that book is highly inflated and and it has come from it comes from wizard it really does in the good and cheap they're going to eventually show uh, um miracle man 15 and talk about how it's the greatest fight scene ever in the history of superhero comics yada yada and then it's going to start to pump up and uh but it appears that there's no more copies no fewer copies of that issue than than any of those other issues before or after so it is very arbitrary in a way and, and now that they sort of put the the, the wizard effect on it yeah it has made it a sought after book and right. people would hold on to it that's so interesting um elf quest future publishing plans jim shooter's last big venture coming up here on broadway comics so funny man like <laughs> like getting lorne michaels into into the game uh you know he so jim shooter had uh valiant after marvel that goes away he gets defiant after that um that goes away pretty quickly and then he gets Broadway Entertainment, man. That's the that's the company that like Lorne Michaels runs, man. I re I remember I I had a uh, it might have been a bootleg uh, at at the uh, video store that I worked at, but it was called like Mr. Mike's Mondo Video or something like that. You ever hear of this VHS tape, man? It's it's a bunch of SNL skits from the '70s that didn't make it to the TV show. So like the early VHS stuff, they 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 put that together. That's like where where um, Dan Aykroyd is like showing off his webbed toes and stuff, and that's not a special <laughs> effect and stuff like that. They did a special Mr. Bill for that, but I, that had a Broadway Entertainment logo and stuff. So once again, this is another example of you know Lorne Michaels' financial plan or like got the news late that comics are super popular or something. And uh, you always hear about like like Winuvo Riche or something like like where it's like you have to be protective of your investments and have like the right financial planners and lawyers and stuff and i imagine lord michaels is rich for a pretty long time at this point but somebody talked him into giving jim shooter money for a company shooter looks so happy in that picture too <laughs> and it's it's that thing too and and also this this is very you hear mark cuban talk about this kind of shit like when they do that shark tank stuff where okay now we're investing in you and what do they do? They throw a big ass fucking party. How about invest that in like maybe paying a better page rate for your guys and maybe you get a better product? Like, why does a comic book company need a big um party when really the only game in town that's gonna give you any coverage is, is Wizard? Like you think this shit showed up anywhere else? Um It is a bizarre way to spend a whole bunch of money in an industry where like there's a low barrier to entry. Whatever this party cost is probably as much as they ended up spending on the couple of months when they were actually publishing comics. there's 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 the famous story steve jobs when, when he's getting some venture capital for early apple and uh he's running around like paul revere in the apple complex hide the porsches hide the porsches the venture yeah. capitalists are coming to town like hide the porsches let me, let me read this one of the highlights of the evening was the semi-life-size cardboard standia fatale <laughs> that's a bad party if the highlights say uh semi-lifestyle i mean all i'm seeing is sausage in these photos you know that's the only female that's at the party oh no there's one other one that's right ellie shooter jim's mom <laughs> yeah she's she's the uh the the dave letterman mother of comics uh she's called just bizarre uh liam sharp taking over death dealer look at how young from, that dude uh, simon is. bisley yeah <laughs> yeah it's fun to see that uh any company updates pop out to you i didn't i didn't sign off on anything but, no yeah that's um you know like Coming from Comics Pro this earlier this year, one of the things that I, I was struck by was 
the idea that there's not an exciting event happening, something that people are coming into the store to talk about. And I kind of get that impression reading through like those company updates. It feels like there's this stagnant period right here. Yeah. Um, you know, Broadway's launch party, notwithstanding, but it does feel like, I don't know what's going on in terms of, uh, you know, generating a lot of buzz besides the heroes reborn. It's still several months off. Uh, this article illustrates one of the hopeful pieces mm -hmm. of that, the dregs of that period, because you're, you're out of uh, superhero comics. I'm out of superhero comics also. I'm, I'm a couple years younger than you. And, and it's like, like I'm the audience that should be served by these superhero publishers at this time. And I'm out. I, I completely detect the abuse and understand how, how they're trying to, you know, take, take the money out of my pocket. Then I started discovering independent comics and we're looking at an article with uh, with terry moore talking about um what's it called strangers, strangers in, in paradise. paradise yeah this is really an interesting article to me because this this missed my it was not on my radar probably until 2000 or something yeah. like once i started engaging with like spx and self-publishing and things strangers in paradise at that point i think is either completed or nearing completion yeah. and i mean it's kind of a success because it goes through this 90s period when everybody almost folds up these self-publishers and, and, and yet then, he makes this big story yeah and the numbers grow you know like he's getting more and more of an audience and he's getting commercial pushes because there's such a little good comics being made that he's getting nominated for many awards so like wizard could not ignore him mm -hmm. because of the praise that he's receiving and stuff um Kids that I went to art school with, they they uh, they had these trades, and that's that's how I was able to check them out. Um, it ain't love and rockets, right? You know what I'm saying? It, it's not even close to that level. Uh, so like that was my thing, where I'm like reading it, and I'm like, oh whatever, like like it's not, you know, I'm not so into it because I'm spoiled by Los Bros. But uh, it's interesting. This guy's he's an old old head, you know. Forty one at the time of this article. Yeah, and he's just kind of getting started, which which is that you know it's that Grandma Moses thing for you guys out there who might be late to the game, uh, but are making comics. Like you could have your hit when you're a little older and stuff. But uh, yeah, he has a kid that that's that's my age when he's just like starting publishing. You know, born in eighty two. So uh, that was that was pretty noteworthy to me. Yeah, it's a book that when I finally kind of gave it a look i also didn't connect to it and i mm. think it's what you say you know i had read love and rockets at that point and, and dan Klaus, i was a big fan of and like this stuff is probably um it's it, it, it's, it's kind of this middle brow you know and i don't say that insultingly yeah but, but it was something different than what i was looking for but it is this huge success story in a lot of ways like he is he's basically a comics lifer and a lot of it is a self-publisher so like you know double kudos yeah. to him and i'm sure a lot of people watching this are fans like this is a book that's been around and is certainly now at this point probably multiple generations of a fan base i i i think that it probably acts as a gateway yeah it's kind of like uh it's, it's kind of like lady gaga or something and not to be insulting or anything like that but like like she got girls out of like the bullshit kind of like boy bands or whatever and like at least got them interested in like if you like lady gaga you got to hear the name david bowie and then maybe you get curious and you check some stuff out like that like for the fanboys of this era this is nearly superhero adjacent in terms of its construction so it's like it's a language that you understand as a superhero fan or something and then if you dig this then maybe you go find you know the stuff that that is you know the next level yeah it's also the kind of thing you could slip to somebody who's not that eccentric comics fan where like i'm looking for something really specific at this point as a reader 
or as a creator, this is kind of the thing that you could just hand to somebody casually and be like, come on in, try comics. Yeah. Uh, how about an ad for Kingdom Come? We're going to have to do it, Jimmy. Yeah, that'll, that'll be a big one. It's, uh, man, the bat and the eagle. <laughs> it's like, what a mashup. How cool that he's able to like paint that fade though, huh? Like like, yeah. that, like that motion blur. That's That's showing some skills, man. Yeah, no doubt about it. Big book. That's the other, that's probably one of the other big events of 96 is Kingdom Come. Um, this is that thing that Wizard started maybe 10 issues ago of having these like two page spread and just overview of a series. This is for the dreaming, hoping to grab some of the audience from Sandman after Sandman ends. You know, in, in The Wire, there's that Bunny Colvin speech that he gives the guys about, you know, creating Hamsterdam where he's talking about the great act of civic compromise was to put your bottle of elderberry into a paper bag. And like, this is comics great act of like civil compromise uh very famously it's not in the article but very famously neil gaiman is on record many times saying like we're gonna wrap up sandman if you dc comics make more sandman comics i'll never do anything for you ever again we're just gonna cut our losses uh i'm gonna take it as a disrespect and we'll be done and he feeds them stuff every now and then. You know, he, he'll do a comic for them every now and then. But the act of civil compromise between the corporation and the creator was like, cool, we won't do a Sandman comic. But you created dozens of very cool characters within the series of Sandman. How do you feel about us exploring all of those ones, man? And uh, he kept doing DC Comics, so he, so he, must, be, he must be okay with it. And, that, and that's what the dreaming is. You know, now obviously he didn't create Cain and Abel, but he created Gregory and, and uh, uh, you know, Merv Pumpkinhead and, and those kinds of characters. It's Terry LeBan who's doing the first uh, batch of issues. Mm -hmm. He's he's one of the, you know, he's one of the Chicago cartoonists. Like, like you look at the old, uh, you know, in Masters of Comic Art or whatever, the mini comics that the Chicago guys were doing, Klaus. Chris Ware, like Terry LeBan's on those pages. So that's that's pretty interesting. I don't know if this piece is him. I'm imagining so. I think he's just writing the first uh, the first arc, I think. I see. Yeah, I'm not sure who this artist is. Uh, bad on Wizard for not having that spelled out somewhere. Like, give credit to what we're looking at. Yeah, yeah. Skip, skip. Another Rob Liefeld ad. Pat, Pat Lee, who goes on to do... Dreamwave. Yes. Is I was going to say Dark Minds, I think, is like one of his breakout image... Uh, comics, but it's that early, like, really bringing anime style into, like, the, you know, it's very different than what you see here. Yeah, it, it, the, the art could even, maybe even be the same, but it's it's that cel-shaded color yeah, that's it. that looks like an animation cell. Uh, he's a very colorful figure, um, and, and, like, it's never going to come up in the wizards that we look at, but his subsequent life, like, you know, we have to be so careful about talking about because I don't know about like slander libel shit. You see Bloodpool, you know, copyright like Rob Liefeld. So even though Rob's doing this Marvel stuff, like he's still putting a lot of shit out there. And like this stuff, I remember thinking like being nervous of even having this issue because that's like almost obscene. <laughs> like it, it's a fucking full camel toe like on his drawing. And he would do that. That was like his innovation to comics was putting like <laughs> camel toes on girls, man. <laughs> I always like whenever they throw a wrestler in these... uh in this nonsense look dude he's got a bunch of scissors coming out of him from arn anderson out <laughs> here we go man this is what you guys came here for wow this episode is brought to you by the cartoonist kayfabe patreon three different levels will give you access to our videos before anyone else sees them to give you a leg up on the kayfabe effect 
And at the King K Faber level, you actually sit in on our recording sessions. This episode is also brought to you by the books that we make. You see our bibliography in front of you right now. In addition to all of these books, Ed Piscor's Red Room Crypto Killers, the new season of Red Room is now out. Issue one is available now. Issue two cover here. There are also a clip of variant covers by Ed, Peach Momoko, me, and many other great artists. The other big book that Ed is releasing later this year, Hip Hop Family Tree, The Omnibus, collecting all of the Hip Hop Family Tree strips in one handsome 500 plus page volume, including over 100 pages of new material. That'll be out in time for the holidays. Got to pre-order it now so Fanographics knows how many to print. There's also an Omnibus collection of X-Men Grand Design coming out later this year. Again, pre-order that one today. Let them know how many you need because some of the X-Men Grand Design three volumes are out of print. So get that one big handsome collected volume. My next big book later this summer, Street Angel, Princess of Poverty from Image Comics. This is available for pre-order now. Collects all of the Street Angel comics that are not in Street Angel, Deadliest Girl Alive. Also available and back in print from Image Comics. You can also pick up my Hulk Grand Design with the fluorescent green cover. You cannot miss it. As well as Plain Janes, the first young adult graphic novel. And now back to our program. And Jimmy, if you don't put the uh, Captain America with the chest on 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 the uh, thumbnail, man, we, we that might be the missed opportunity. Yeah, I think you're right about that. They even messed it up here a little bit by by blocking it out with a shadow. But because it had no controversy, <laughs> it was fully accepted until the internet became more mainstream and people were like doing retro stuff. But like, if you flip the pages real quick or whatever, yeah. like like that didn't raise any red flags at the time. No, and I think there's one more image of Captain America like this in this issue. <laughs> so maybe the wizard uh, staffers recognized that they had some gold on their hands with that. When when I first talked to Rob, he um, like when he first called me years ago, Hip Hop Family Tree issue one era, uh, he brought up that image, and that um, he was like, and Jim Lee said that you know I should I should take that chest down, blah 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 blah, blah but I didn't, but. Uh, to me, it didn't even strike strike me in any real way either. Like I like I see the absurdity, like but superheroes are absurd. You know what? Too, in hindsight, if you're Rob Liefeld, if you're anybody, wouldn't you make the chest this size if you knew what? Uh, this is an iconic image. It is. If it's, it's, a, a, it's, a if it's an, an anatomically correct chest. I don't know that it registers as anything Listen. but as it is like it's been around 28 years and people still uh probably remember i bet they remember this a lot more than they remember the jim lee fantastic four cover and that's why i think that um that billy tucci dude put six fingers on she on that first cover <laughs> look at how over this this is an interesting pie graph to me let's get into some visual aids yeah, yeah let's yeah. get into our uh, our powerpoint presentation now but the jim lee books yes. iron man and fantastic four 80 percent of this fan pool yep. behind that to kind of give an idea of Jim Lee's still, still, you know, such a popular artist at this time. Like it's his popularity. I don't know if it's ever waned. One of my big takeaways, they just kind of explain loosely what's happening. Not a lot of details exactly, but they talk about any characters that are created, they'll have a profit participation in, but Marvel will own those characters. And I think they have like a six month, they'll do six issues and then there's like an out. And I think that's when Liefeld leaves this project and Jim Lee takes over the, the all four books yeah. after the six issue mark. Um, that's about as much as I get from this article that's just laying the groundwork. But the part that I was shocked by is this nuclear reaction. This is a list of people responding to this idea and um, pretty negative for the most part. And they have names from Frank Miller to Hart Fisher. Yes. So it's all kinds of people weighing in. I thought they had one of the um, 
the host from Gravity Room, but that must be somewhere else that that that, that weighs in. All negative, but but it is worth noting that this guy Ron Morris, the the writer of Green Lantern, is the most lukewarm political diplomatic guy of them all. I, I think it's very difficult for anyone to judge the wisdom or stupidity of this. Everybody needs to realize that a healthy Marvel means a healthy industry as a whole. He's the only like mid Carter. Everybody else is very firm in their thoughts and beliefs. And a lot of their thoughts and beliefs, it's that thing like you and I encounter this stuff because like we put ourselves out there here on kayfabe, you know, to 600,000 people a month. And people have ideas about what you think, what they think you're doing, and they inflect that upon you as, as your character. So, like, you see all these people, like Frank Miller, he doesn't really have a relationship with these guys in any real way at this moment. From the looks of things, at least one or two of them forming Image Comics and making a dramatic break from Marvel was nothing but a negotiation ploy. It's like you're not in their heads, you know what I mean? Like, you don't know what the shit is, man. It's it's wild though. Like I'm insulted that uh, this is Tom Lyle. I'm insulted that Marvel had to go outside of the company to save the company. By the way, end of '96, they're bankrupt, so they needed to do something. This didn't actually save and, it, but and, they are in trouble. And also, you know, Tom Lyle, like you're an independent contractor. You're not in no company. The people who are in the company are the editors who have health insurance. You ain't in the company. You're just a guy that they're contracting work to. You're a plumber, like to the, this this bigger company. All these guys, though, have some version of like how this comics are in trouble and need help. Some of them flat out say comics are in trouble. You know, Kurt Busiak, the comics industry is in trouble. Yes. So this is where you're really starting to see it, which is wild because like it's going to continue down for like the next, I don't know, depending where you count, maybe at least four years, five years, it's going to continue getting worse and worse sales. So for them to sort of all be like, oh boy, we're in trouble at this point. It's the beginning of the trouble. They did get a quote from, from Ron Garney, too, who, who was the artist on Captain America. And, and to illustrate, you know, Mr. Lyle, that you are not part of any company, uh, you know, Ron Garney, like, they, a couple issues ago, they were talking about all their hopes and plans of, like, what they're doing for Captain America. Captain America's stuff's get, in here. Getting a, it is. Captain America's getting a push and is becoming a fan-favorite comic. But it's like too little, too late kind of shit. Uh, you know, in retrospect now, you, we, we have on the record, like Rob Liefeld and certain people like talking about how this this deal was in the works for a long time before, you know, Bob Harris becomes editor-in-chief. Bob Harris made his bones, got mad popular, thanks to um, Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld. So he gets that position of power. Why not call the dudes that... Uh, you went to the dance with man yeah, absolutely 100 percent. that that part makes sense but <sighs> well we know how it goes the you know what else is in here is mark wade Liefeld keeps talking about mark wade being the uh, captain america scripter and that of course doesn't come to pass because i think there's some hard feelings once you know mark wade and ron garney are kind of shown the door uh, at least briefly i think they come back after this storyline yeah. is resolved but I think there's a lot of hard feelings at the time of that. The other noteworthy piece about this Heroes Reborn stuff is that it harkens back to the golden age of comics. Jim Lee has a studio of comic book makers. Rob Liefeld has a studio of comic book yeah. makers. In the same way that um, Eisner and Iger had a studio or Victor Fox yep. or any of those guys. So these books are kind of like being consigned to you know this outside studio to like do your thing put your books together we have to have final say 
You know, we can't have you disrespecting our properties and stuff. But that is a fascinating it really notion. Is. Yeah, that, it really is. That you kind of like outsource it at that level. Um, I, I like that idea. I do too. I'm glad that you mentioned that because it's it's definitely worth noting because you've got old timers that that's a known history at this point it's 40 years in the past maybe 50 years you know the beginning of that studio system so at least they're trying something too you know like i don't know how public it is or where marvel actually is at that point but kudos for like trying something to get them out of the doldrums um the crow sequel covered here i don't have too much to say about this we were talking beforehand i don't even remember how many crow movies were actually made i think there's at least three plus a tv um, show i know that the guy who was in brotherhood of the wolf played crow once and so th that's not this dude so that's that's three there but that might have been the tv show i remember watching uh about two-thirds of one of the crow sequels at like tcaf you know late at night and just being totally confused <laughs> by what was going on like this is not to be insensitive but you can see this Victor Perez dude here steps in out of the crow's shadow. So you get to play crow in the sequel. Like when you're gonna have a um, a scene of violence, like you're gonna make the stunt guy shoot up in the air first, right? Yeah, I bet there aren't any uh, a lot of gun scenes. <laughs> I bet they're all filmed differently. Isn't that just point. like the I like just cannot wrap my head around. Uh, Th that like lo loss of life like that in, in movies and shit like that. I cannot wrap my head around that because it feels unnatural right. to point a toy pistol at you and pull the trigger. It feels unnatural to me. So like, why it, don't you just fucking point at a wall and shoot before you do a scene or something, man? Not only that, if you're shooting from a profile, right? Like this to, to turn it. So it's not pointed at a person would not even register on film right. like it's a degree or two right it, it is crazy and you know you think of like uh that alec baldwin movie somebody exactly was shot that's what i'm and talking about i don't know how it could ever happen twice and it's happened more than twice it has i don't know man it's 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 baffling but and even those kayfabe guns are dangerous because like uh right. the, the one lady from um she was on peewee's playhouse her, her husband was a stunt double and he was just kind of being an asshole uh you know joking like like being a, a jokester and he held like a kayfabe gun with that had like the little um black charge yeah but but it's like a special kind that like is designed to hit you it's because it like creates like a little spark it's like these like little beads or something it's like a paper wad or something and he sent the fucking paper wad through his head yeah yeah um one of the takeaways for me is this idea of like they make this move the first crow for 20 million dollars and it grosses over 100 million dollars that's how like it's out of your hands at that point. Like you're just going to get sequels mm -hmm. and regardless of how troubled or, you know, tragic that first movie is, it's like, it doesn't matter. The bottom line dictates like, we're going to, we're going to do this again. It's America, baby. Like, it's like that, that is uh that is one of those things because, because, you know, it would have been probably did the numbers of like double dragon or like any of those kind of movies, man. But it had this baggage attached to it that made all the, um, sort of, rubberneckers mm. show up and like let me see this they compare the two and both budgets are the same at 20 million which is what has changed i think in uh, movie making now where like you get the sequel and now it's suddenly bigger yeah. bigger budget bigger cast bigger 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 whereas here it's kind of like no 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 we can do it for 20 million keep that going and we'll just keep cashing in on it kurt busiak 
um, talking untold tales of spider-man and astro city and you see an astro city piece there by alex ross was doing covers and i guess character designs for that what a piece man punching a shark dude <laughs> yeah right that's so great man <laughs> great up like up lighting or down lighting or whatever uh kurt Busick, once again just just kind of like uh, that that terry moore stuff there's a theme in this issue uh comics is so bad that the dudes that have some skills really shine and Busick has a big workload you know he's got to do about 30 40 comics a year um he that he's kind of scheduled to 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 create uh the astro city stuff is fascinating because whenever like job dudes went and made like made their image comic or something you kind of could tell that they put less energy into that stuff and that, and that was the same through years like like before like these these formulas have been established where you make your name at marvel dc and then you like do your passion project and you put heart and soul into it and then you prosper that way but like when those guys were dancing with the indies there's so of the mindset of like i get 500 dollars a page i will put 500 dollars worth of effort into this page uh astro city is like the first where it's like you take these consummate mainstream professionals and they really you know they put in a ton of effort and, and and make you know the best kind of superhero comic they can make this was the superhero comic that everybody would talk about yeah. like uh like the old dudes at the comic shop whenever they absolutely. were you know shitting on whatever garbage i was buying absolutely astro city would be the one they'd hold up as like this is the good superhero stuff absolutely but it comes at an unfortunate time for me because because I'm done with capes. I, I really am done yeah. with capes here. I'm still fucking reading Wizard Magazine to just have some comic something to, to read. Like, so like, let me see what's even happening. And I'm glad I did because, like, I discovered Preacher, like, through that. Like, it wouldn't have happened without Wizard. But um, I'm done with this. I'm putting my 8-Ball collection together. I'm grabbing a couple of issues of Love and Rockets every week um, at this time and building up that stuff. So, like... I was, I was prejudiced uh, against this kind of thing. That said, another highlight of this article is that Untold Tales of Spider-Man, which was part of that initiative of nine, 99 cent books mm -hmm. that were um, might have some continuity, but they're kind of one and done also, and they and they fit in between classic issues of Spider-Man or whatever. Now, at this time, I would have had pull lists for sure. Um, I never put this on my pull list, but when I would see an issue, I would scoop it up and fucking love it. So this might be the last superhero comic that I really fucked with. And it's it's a testament to the creators, Pat Olaf and, and uh, Kurt Busiek, because it's a 90, it's a 90 cent, 99 cent book. It, even if you make it super popular, your royalty is trash but they still made a great comic without those concerns yeah this is another one of those beloved superhero comics in terms of uh critical response i recommend at a time it. when like nobody you know very few superhero comics were considered any good totally this is one that i remember people pointing at and i, I picked up some of these and i will say they've held their value like like, like uh, <laughs> right. you, you find them in the dollar bins uh it's interesting because buziak tells the story of there was somebody else was slated to write it and they backed out and whenever uh, Buziak heard about it, he basically outlined like the first six issues 
over Christmas break or something before he was even officially going to pitch it. So like whenever he got a chance to talk to Tom Brevert, which is interesting too, like there's a longtime Marvel editor. It's got to be the longest tenured Marvel editor at this point. Oh yeah. But active back in this time, 28 years ago, he shows up and it's like, here's the outline for the first six or seven issues. Um, I love that enthusiasm. You know what I mean? Like as much as we say jobber, it feels like this is a job he wanted and cared about and and really put some effort into. Yeah, he's a scholar of that that Silver Age Marvel stuff. You know, like uh, he did that... created X-Men Grand Design in the 70s with Scott McCloud, uh, and they, you know, did their whole retrospective of the X-Men. He just, he's read all that stuff. He's internalized all of that material. Garth Ennis writing the um, medieval Spawn Witchblade crossover. Listen, man, you, he's the new hot guy, and, you know, we've, we've done some Alan Moore comics, so let's get the next uh, European fella. All right. Wizard Q&A with Mark Wade. Um, so... Most of these comics, like the Flash stuff, I've, I've never read. I have no idea. There's a lot of DC stuff in here that I don't know about. So what I'm going to say here has nothing to do with the quality of what he's writing. But this is pitched as basically he's such a fast writer. And I think they're trying probably to play on the Flash. You know, he's writing the Flash. So let's uh, play up the speed thing. But it's emblemic of like, what is wrong with comics? How about that speed is something that we glorify? Right. You know what I mean? Like, I've heard people really talk about how like the monthly schedule of comic books is a problem and whenever you're saying speed is the virtue that you need to be the celebrated writer or creator um possibly that's a problem (laughs) you know what i mean like i don't care how long it takes make a good book yeah yeah and and again not saying that his weren't but that is what that first page is all about is just how fast he is writing all these different comics they're gonna bring him to x-men and i remember that being a thing that felt weird because it was such a X Men, such a like a flashy kind of cool, cool book, mm-hmm. and you know, at, even at this point, he's like a middle aged, you know, ginger and stuff like that. Man. So, so like it felt like, it felt like an infiltration of like the cool property, by like the old heads. You know, they're they're coming to to, to to the mutants, and that was that was a, a big deal. Another Rob Liefeld ad for his properties and uh, i think this is like one of those great illustrations of when we talk with rob he's like i ink my faces and you could tell that that ink job like rob liefeld did not ink any of this you could just tell and you could tell that it wasn't like danny Miki. you know it's it's definitely some like low level jonathan sybil probably uh you know i i just don't know because like i knew his stuff real well and and that feels even more slight but uh, I, I also think that this guy put some lines on the face, too, a little bit. So this book never came out, right? I don't know. And, and Alan Moore, Rob Liefeld, Warchild, I don't think that ever happened. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, you know, we brought it up many times before, and we've gotten answers. Uh, but I always forget. I have no idea. Yeah, the only Warchild I know is the Chapier yeah. uh, storyline. So I don't know if that's here's, here's, the same thing or here, something different. Here's the other... Uh, Mark Wade piece is still talking all of his hopes and dreams and things he has planned for for Captain America. So we just saw the Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee article, and this interview perhaps was done before that news broke. And it just looks goofy. It speaks to the editorialism of Wizard as being a little bit hacky because there's not even a mention that, like, you know, the end of a legacy has nothing to do with the end of Captain America you know, run that he and Ron Garney are doing. It's just about like the legacy virus and X-Men. You know, he's going to clear up some dangling threads. And also, I don't think Kingdom Come is 
it's, it's mentioned here in the beginning, upcoming Twilight of the DC Universe Epic Kingdom Come with artist Alex Ross, but I don't think it's talked about in the actual interview. How cool is that? Yeah. That's a good toy, man. That's one of those, like, f- four-pounders, right? Like, that's a big, heavy-ass <laughs> yeah, toy. Yeah, like, like the LJN, uh, Andre the <laughs> yeah, Giant right. kind of deal. But if you're a little dude and you just are in the store, uh, you got to scoop that up. And then when, when McFarlane creates this kind of thing... I'm sure this comes first, and he's like, well, now i got to figure out how to like weave that into Spawn lore. Yeah, and there wasn't a lot of uh, weaving that in, is there? He's Might in there. after I left. Yeah, no, he's definitely in there. Man, this fucking Mark Waite shit is long. Yeah. More Rob Liefeld. Another uh, Rob Liefeld ad. Ads. So, prepping for this, this was one of those articles where, like, oh, yeah, this ends up being huge, Magic the Gathering. Talking about it coming into comic shops, and there are stories by comic retailers talking about how this is half of their business now. Absolutely. It came came out of nowhere. I was uh, watching a video about the origin of Magic the Gathering. I'm just curious because, yeah, it just just shows up. And it was this real fascinating thing where, like, the guy creates the game based off of, like, a a game that he made before. There's a famous con called Gen Con, which is, like, the role-playing tabletop game convention the big one and they produce you know their their card game uh it takes an extra day like they're down a day at the con because their order comes a day late and with all that said they sell out of like 2.5 million cards at that convention and then within a year or two it's like 7 billion cards have been made yeah there's um there's a number in here somewhere should have highlighted it of like this this industry goes from not existing to like millions of dollars basically in it okay it goes from uh estimated over 100 million dollars sales for just the magic card games and this is this is from nothing like there wasn't a collectible card game industry yeah no it didn't exist but here go back a page but look at this man it's already starting with they all have it. DC has one, Marvel has one, Wildstorm has one. You know, like, again, it goes from not existing to everybody's in this arena. Yeah, yeah, and to this day, uh, you know, Pokemon cards, you, you see you see people going ravenous. You know, there was a, there was a big uh, conspiracy recently that the people, like, printing them off were... Uh, stealing a bunch of like the rare cards and shit like the people at the at the smart at the at the, at the printing plants were taking the rare stuff and and being greedy about it like 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 taking nine of those cards to like one shop and, and selling them for if they, if they weren't money. greedy about it we wouldn't hear about it <laughs> <laughs> they could have passed off one card forever just one per shop there is forever there is a documentary uh on you well uh, it's been a long time since i had netflix but it was there i, I forget what it's called but um it the start of the card speculation boom of our day was the Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card from Upper Deck in like 1990, 91. And uh, they they get into the kayfabe, but that were like, it's supposed to be a more rare card, but like Upper Deck making just like full sheets of them. Yes, and, of course, of yeah. course. Here's that number. It goes from a non-existent category, and this is two years, into $200 million business in two years. Yeah. Like, you know, you show up with something that doesn't exist, and in two years it's a $200 million business, it's berserk. Yeah. It, it, you know, it saves some comic shops in the late 90s. We talked to people. Um, Heroes I, I, is, is, is I one of the interviews. Saved, I think it probably saved most. Yeah, I think I think so. It's it's a really wild thing. Planet Money, um, the podcast, 
had an episode on this and they talked about like it was when they started introducing like chase cards and the ability to expansion decks like they really figured out how do you keep this going yeah because there, there's the initial like oh we like this right but then like how do you make it a 200 million dollar how do you keep it going 20 years later um some really interesting business practices you know right choices it's were, a, were made yeah like from from the from the from the gate like the the guy who ran wizards of the coast when it was presented with the game and stuff like he just saw the potential that it's like trading cards like so you know you're selling these cards uh it's random um but the engineering of the game i've never played it yeah um, I, 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 I played uh the star wars game with my kid brother around this time when we were kids but um from what i understand the engineering of the game is world class and they continue to refine it and things like that man so so because like even at this time the like the most popular card is like the black lotus or something like that he an instant kill card and it was too powerful so rule sets were created to like get that out or maybe you just get to use one um and they never created any more so that's why it's like the most sought after so it's this like liquid thing that continues to be refined it's the same model as dungeons and dragons you know where like you, you got to keep putting out modules or whatever like i uh, keep refining the 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 process and and people fucking love it uh, the uh the comic shops back in the day i remember they called it the flat crack <laughs> that's good stuff yeah um yeah that's one of those articles where i feel like who knows the impact whenever that article is published but in hindsight it's like yeah that was a big moment in comics I don't have much for like these character nah, profiles. Um, Greg Pulo continuing his stuff. This is mostly expressions and some fun illustrations. I love this gimmick of like the eye, you know, if you cover up the mouth, it's the same, but it completely changes the expression just flipping those mouths around. Um, pretty basic stuff. Talks about using a mirror, you know, to practice on this stuff. Um, good advice, obviously. Just the same thing almost with fingers. Like, look it's a, the fingers doing the same thing but you just position it a certain way and it means something different he's great with hands he by is the way. very is. Uh, very expressive hands here and i don't think i would have put the nail on the head as a kid just didn't have the language for it or the understanding but but it's cart it's cartooning yeah 100%. you know j just because there's a million lines everywhere uh doesn't make it realistic by any stretch like this is this is pure cartoon artwork yeah exaggeration everywhere but but well-played exaggeration and then body language so you go through like kind of the whole gamut of the human expression so i would like sketch these things and just like i couldn't believe how fluid and how much weight and bounce you know like these characters feel like they're standing and i just this stuff made me feel a little bit hopeless at the time where it's like I just I just even at this simple level yeah you see it all there and I could not capture that this stuff is so much harder than it looks because all those books have some version of this and uh -huh. I always struggled with it yeah uh, all women on the drawing board uh, women art uh, characters not all women artists but all women characters and um, Cybernary a character that we've been talking about makes an appearance there that's a real supermodel lady that's modeled, isn't it? She looks so familiar. Probably. That's Definitely American, looks like it's uh, referenced. American Maid from uh, Tick. Tick. Yeah. And Flux gets a, uh, some shine here. Yeah, no artists that I, that I can recall, um, you know, who went on to bigger and better in the comic book game. I love seeing, like, the kind of America, America manga, mm -hmm. even though it's North America, because right. that's uh, Canada. Homemade heroes again. I don't know what the girl, the the woman theme is. It's just like these two piece, these two articles. It's not like it's an issue wide focus. Yeah. 
They could have they could have synced that one up a little bit better. This, uh, this manga scene. Yeah, this piece is huge to me, man. First off, Leia Hernandez is off it now. We got a new guy, Carl Gustav Horn, is the uh, manga scene writer. Uh, the fanboys of manga. This is uh this is one of those like serendipitous things to me because since I've come back from uh, Japan, I've been going down a Hideko Hideko Ano rabbit hole. And in fact, last night, me and Tom, kayfabe lieutenant, we went to go see Shin Kamen Rider. He directed that flick. And what we're looking at here is uh, the wings of Hanamis, uh, OVA flick that um, was put out by Gainax. This article is about Gainax. And uh, it's it's a fascinating retrospective piece, given the time frame that we're talking, because Neon uh, Genesis Evangelion is a new show at this time in Japan. It's not even here in the States, but it's so hopeful. Like the few episodes that have come out, people are very, very excited about it. This is a great overview of the Gainax studio. Uh, there is a sitcom drama show called uh, Blue Blazes, Japanese show. And it's about this baseball mangaka. It's an autobiography. This baseball mangaka went to art school in Osaka with the Gainax dudes. And so Hidea, so Ano and the other Gainax dudes are in school. And on the show, they use their student artwork, like their student animations and shit, woven into the plots and things. That's the a more cool interesting concept. the more interesting shit is the Gainax part, because like the Monica right. is fine or whatever, but he w got to witness something. And in this piece, they talk about the Daikon opening animes. And I don't know if you have ever seen these things, but I got a hold of a tape, like a fifth generation tape, uh, when I when I worked at the call center of the Daikon opening animations. You can find them on YouTube. The first one is uh done by the Gainax kids right after school. And and though the whole deal with them, Ano in particular, is that they are fans. Like Miyazaki, you work for Studio Ghibli, Ghibli, however you say it. Miyazaki's gonna whip the fucking Ghibli fanboy out of you. We're here to do a job. We're here to make the best flicks possible. I don't want your anime cliches infecting my work. So he beats the fanboy out of you. The Gainax dudes are like the opposite. You know, like they are fanboys. Like when I, I haven't watched all of Evangelion, but when you watch the, the first couple episodes, the similarities between that and Gundam are pretty close. And Ano is directed Shin Godzilla, wrote Shin Ultraman. One of his student pieces, his student videos, he does a he did an Ultraman where he like he's Ultraman. He doesn't have a mask or anything. He just has like a silver coat and is doing all this shit and has special effects. They made toys of him from his student film. Like it's wow. it's a classic thing. But this this uh the guy the Daikon opening animations, it would be a, a big convention, big anime convention, and every year they would have a little anime piece to like kind of like ring in the the event. The first the first one they did, they were just kids. They couldn't even afford animation cells. They just got like hold of like some acetates and like cut it to size and like got a hole punch and, and it, it was not the right stuff. And it was just a little crew of dudes who made that. But uh, Gainax, I mean Daikon 4 opening anime, that's the one you have to see because it has Daikon meets Radish. Uh, so it has this girl like on a uh, like riding like this like mechanized radish thing. It's 
they can never sell this. It has Batman, Robin, X Men, <laughs> Alien, Xenomorphs, um, Star Wars, do Boba Fett, all kinds of fly shit inside of like a two three minute thing that just fucking blows your mind. And it was a legendary thing and so mysterious because it's so bootleg and the copy that I got fifth generation so muddy you know like the magnetic tape was unforgiving yeah <laughs> you do what you're doing off camera right right yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah the video was just line. The, right. <laughs> was just and and so like my copy that I copied off of Dave it would be sixth generation so like it, but you could watch it crystal clear online um so fascinating that they have this here and and gunbuster wings of hanamese like uh ano after the daikon piece like he worked with miyazaki and he animated the final monster in nausicaa which is like super unforgettable man it's a big kaiju and it has so much color and shading and like little bits coming off it and miyazaki was like if you fuck this up, you're fucking up my whole movie. Like, like I can't do this. I'm not good enough. Like, I, you have potential. And when you watch Blue Blazes and you see what the student animations are, it's this great thing where they use the the mangaka's animation, and it's just a guy running towards the camera, but it's very simple. It's almost like that uh, Greg Capullo shit we were just looking at. Running towards the camera, and then it erases. You know, it's white screen. And then he looks over, and there's like a whole group looking at Anno's flipbook or whatever. And then they show that student animation. It's a car falling from the sky on top of another car bouncing and like the glass and like all the tires and stuff just like psh, like that's what it was super ambitious extremely professional just uh he's he's a unicorn creator that's cool you know they give their background and they talk about the very first thing that they shoot is shot frame by frame on a home 8 millimeter camera that that was that Daikon 1 and i was reading like uh Corbin bio and yeah. same exact equipment you yeah, know, for his first animated film was like his dad's eight millimeter camera. So it's it's interesting how like man, if you have that all that these, compulsion to create, like the tools just don't matter. All these guys uh, did that exact same thing, man. Like uh, Eric Goldberg, the guy guy who uh, he's Disney, Disney animator, um, responsible for the genie and Aladdin. Uh, I seen him give a talk and and he showed his student animations and shit. And and it's it's what it's the stuff that I'm doing uh, on in my free time where it's just. You know, it's just it's just ink on paper, very minimal backgrounds because you don't have cells and you can't fucking yeah. afford that stuff. You, you just and 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 now with with uh, the phones, there's stop motion apps that can act as that eight millimeter um, camera where you could do frame by frame because that was the benefit of that eight milli is like you could just like snap a frame at a time. Camcorders couldn't do it. It would be like pause tapes. You hit pause, pause. Because I made stop motions with that. I put it up on the kayfabe Insta. Right. Uh, where, with my Power Ranger toys, dude. Like, it, you might get, like, 30 frames per pause, really. Uh, one other name that's mentioned in here is Gunsmith Katz Kenichi Sonata, an old Gynax crony who worked on Hanamis. Um, I liked Gunsmith Katz. Yeah. So, uh, worth mentioning, like, a lot of talent to come out of that group. This is my first... Kind of reminds me of, like, some of those Deadline dudes that I think most of them were yeah. all, like, college... Well, there was a core of them that were, like, college buddies. It's that, it's that young enthusiasm where there's a will, there's a way. And, and Anno is... He's he's the he's the unicorn of, of the crew that kind of, like, you know, is maybe slightly autistic or whatever. And, and everybody kind of rallies around. And you just got to give him the space to kind of make his thing. But this is the first image that I ever saw of Hanamis. And I'm like, how do you animate that? Yeah. And the thing is, you don't. Like, this right. is like, you know, the the the, the poster or whatever. I want to see Gunbuster. I, I've, ne I've never seen that one. 
How about manga pick of the month? Battle Angel Alita. Talk about having a, a huge foot, you know, going on to have a huge career here in America. Absolutely. And Pat Labor uh, 2, like the Pat Labor flicks, you see the manga entertainment. Uh, those were the like in the trailer for um, Ninja Scroll. So it's like, all right, well, if it gets to co-sign on Ninja Scroll, I'm gonna have to fuck with that. That and Angel Cop. I feel like this manga column in Wizard has really become like a Palmer's Pick 2.0. They've they've been promoting too that there's the next issue is gonna be the manga issue, but they said that three issues. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. like, uh, it's, it's gotta <laughs> I be I look coming. forward to it, but we'll see. Uh, Maximum Wonder, this is Minimum Wage and uh, Bob Fingerman's Fanographics series. I'll be honest, I've never read one of uh, a, a minimum wage. Yeah, you know, I, I scoop them up when, when I when I see them, um, and I have checked them out. They're very very dense. I, I like his artwork. Uh, Tom Palmer calls it simple, but like it is not simple yeah, at all. It's, I, it's, I've it's, seen it's, plenty of his artwork, and it doesn't strike me as simple. It's bit. very very tight. Um, I I put Bob Fingerman up there, like he. There's like the Fantagraphics kind of golden age, right? Like the like the the sort of Gen One creators and mm -hmm. stuff, or like we'll just say like the golden age. Fingerman skates in there, Dave Cooper skates in there, and I feel like the last of that core is Johnny Ryan. Uh, he comes out around '99, and I remember when he came out with Angry Youth Comics. I remember thinking like, "Wow, there's still like room for like." for these new new guys i was so stoked that they because i was already submitting to fantagraphics at this point and uh johnny ryan is like the new guy but clearly of the same rigor and stuff like you know super tight inking all of that kind of shit uh to me like that that he puts the he puts the cherry on top of like that meticulous craft level fantagraphics creator and then it becomes more like, man, I just don't even know what was coming out from Fantagraphics in like 2000 to, you know, it's like the Paul Hornschmeyer crew. Like, like they were a very ho hopeful crew, but like comics I, is so The format's bad. changed at that point too. That's true. You know, like I think that Johnny Ryan series was like their last sort of like launch series. Yeah. You know, after that, it was like, figure out a spine, put a spine on your book. You know, because Paul Hornschmeyer would do a bunch of books, but they were all sort of like these standalone kind of books. And it's even later, you know, that's just 2003 and stuff. Like, uh, he, you know, he already did his his uh, ad house book or, or you know, self-published stuff or whatever that, that, that stuff was, man. It's it's a real weird dark period. I have to, like, go through my Fantagraphics oral history and just see what the hell was even coming out. Was it was it all Eros? And you get, you get, you get one or two uh, eight balls a year or something? It, it would be funny to look up because the other thing that I find in dollar bins around here are all the Fanographic series that it's like, oh, I've never heard of this one. Yeah. Like anytime I see Fanographics on the cover, I'll pull it. So you remember the golden age, like the, the people who, who have stood the test of time and Fingerman's one of them. Like he's continued to work steadily yeah. on graphic novels and other series. I think he's done stuff at Dark Horse. Um, so, you know, pretty steady, another lifer in comics, totally. more or less. But there are a lot of series or even maybe one issues that Fanographics published of like, oh, that's all they did or didn't find the audience you know whatever the case may be that person was one and done um there's a lot of that stuff like i constantly pull books out that i've never heard of didn't know was a thing to look for and it's like added to my fanographics comic book pile S serial killings man james stern zoot yeah there's there's a I, I should pull all of those and just you'd be shocked by the number of them but it's got to be in the uh we told you so book some kind of catalog of that stuff so Trailer Park is their ongoing movie column, and I got nothing out of this one. How about this, man? That's worth pointing out. Jim Lee's TMNT, and look at what pile of hokum that is. 
so bizarre. I don't know what that was about. It, it just doesn't. And the balls, right? Like to call it Jim Lee's TMNT. Yeah, it's very weird. I feel like this was supposed to be something and it just didn't go. You know, it may have been when he had an animation deal happening with, I don't know. Hard, hard, hard to guess. We, a- we asked Eastman and Laird and we didn't get so clear an answer about that. It was just like more like, yeah, sure, go ahead. I remember being really disappointed in the dragon toys. Because the cartoon sucked, man. It's almost the Savage Dragon 13 X, X book. Is is the the Jim Lee drawing oh, right, Savage right, Dragon? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, is yeah. what this dragon is, as opposed to Eric Larson well, dragon. Look, I mean, it's 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 packed in with the uh-huh. Jim Lee stuff. So so I think he probably had a big hand in it. And um, you know, there is the Savage Dragon cartoon that's out. Right. Eric Larson was very honest in uh, the interview that we did with him when we were going through Savage Dragon miniseries. When I said like it's just ballless, and he was like it's ballless because there's almost never a punch thrown no and that comic book is such an r-rated superhero comic like to go to a saturday morning cartoon yeah it does, you're taking away a lot of uh what makes that book kind of unique look at this on one page dude to root this in a period of time phone cards and uh cds man this this album of uh saturday morning um yeah. jingles by like punk rock bands famously the ramones doing the spider-man theme this was a huge album this was gigantic. And then like phone cards for the kids at home, man. I remember going like a camping with a buddy and uh, you, you find a pay phone because long yeah, distance costs so much. There's a lot to explain to uh, <laughs> any, if we have any audience under 20, this is a lot to expl- unpack here. Long distance costs so much at times. And it, it just a different area code within the same city would cost maybe a dollar. So you get this plan, you get this card. You're basically plugging in. You have to call an 800 number then put in your password, then then call the number that you're supposed to call. You might plug in 50 numbers to call the person that you need to call, and then it would just kind of like drain minutes off of the card. There was a black and white phone card. Uh, um, the Art Art T-Bear. <laughs> ElfQuest. That's amazing, Kabuki. I wonder how, uh, if, if they made any money off of those. This is cool too, man. Uh, the N64 is called the Ultra 64 for a time, and they're showing off some of the games there. I wondered about that. Look at that. I still have my uh, half. So do you. Yeah. Nobody was looking for Avengers of Vampirella at one half. Like, like the bloom was off the rose. We all saw how that, that bullshit worked. You know, did Rob Zombie draw that kind of shit? Don't know. I, th- I, th- I, I seem to remember hearing him say that he was an artist. It says you could win an original Rob Zombie work of art. So it kind of okay. stands to reason that he might have been doing that. Art. Yeah. If he drew that, that's pretty fucking dope. Oh, by the way, man, the bad guy and uh, the main bad guy and Shin Kamen Rider, there, I will not believe you if you if somebody says that Brendan McCarthy was not an influence on this costume. Stripes and vortexes and polka dots of all multicolor. The more you talk about it, the more I'm kind of mad at you and Tom for not giving me a text at least. <laughs> <laughs> all right, top ten comics. I think Dawn is a new entry on this yeah. list. Talking about the you bad know, girl uh, dominance here. I don't have any of that stuff. I've only in my life. At I have that issue. We could look at that. Yeah, issue. but that's the shit. Like, uh, like, like, uh, uh, Cry for Dawn is an outlaw comic that we've never talked about. And I've only seen one issue at a flea market when I was a kid. And the guy would not sell it to me. Because you were a kid? I guess. Yeah, I think there might be titties or fucking or something like that in there. I, I don't remember that part. But I remember the duotone. 
that was used and all the black ink that was used and i want those comics really really bad because there's they're just in my mind's eye they're just so evocative but uh that is a glaring omission in all of our outlaw comics talk just because we don't have the shit like do you have I never any see them i never see them. i saw i saw one issue once you know as a kid at the flea market uh, so I, I feel like they there probably weren't so many and the people who got them want them um i i've never sought them out in any major way like i've I'm, I'm never went to ebay or something like that but uh that is a glaring omission in all of our outlaw comics talk cry for dawn like this is more you know this is spanky shit uh it's not black and white as far as i know joe My michael Linsler like just draws that same drawing over and over and over again he just fills pages up with that drawing because it all kind of looks the same but that uh black and white comic was pretty special stuff hmm. for in my mind's eye we're gonna have to do this issue by the way jimmy wolverine 75 where he loses his adamantium claws yeah, that one didn't make the that, uh, the cut pop. in my in my collection. That's gonna pop. Ah, comics watch. I got nothing to say about either of these. No, this was an early Gen Gen thirteen. This one, I think. yeah, this one might be the issue or two after the infamous Henry Pym Giant Man slugging the wasp in the mm. face, man. Because that's Bob Hall. That's the same creative team. And it got so much, it had so, maybe this is even the issue, I don't know, but it had so much controversy around it. Cause the, the, like, it was a, one of the classic miscommunications when it comes to, to, um, Marvel method. Uh, cause like what Jim Shooter wanted was like a shrug. Yeah. And, and, uh, to, to have Wasp kind of get injured from a shrug, but <laughs> it was not drawn that way. <laughs> and then it created like a whole, arc you know like a whole story dude line. it's the how to draw comics the marvel <laughs> way like you can't just do a shrug <laughs> here's another one of these captain americas i feel like wizard is stoking the fire on this captain america rob liefeld taking over controversy doesn't it feel like it i mean there are like three mentions in this issue about how good this run is shaping up and i think the way this works out like did they only do like eight issues or something before they were cut off? I don't think it was a big long run. I think it was just kind of starting out based on this. I thought it was a longer run because it's built like, how could they replace this team that was doing so well? But I think they might have just done, maybe they maybe they do three, like four issues, uh, you know, storylines or something. Yeah. If this uh, Dennis Rodier is D-E-N-I-S, Rodier, Rodier. It's got to be. I think it is. Um but you never know when you have two John K's and, you know, like a whole bunch of people with the same name. Um, he's got an Instagram and he puts the camera close while he's inking. And uh, it's not ASMR. It's visual ASMR. You know what I'm saying? Like it's he's a fucking fantastic anchor. I was trying to figure because that name's really familiar to me. I know it from somewhere and I can't place why. He but never, it's something I, that's on my radar. I don't know that he... he the best of his work might not be... I don't think he's American. I think he's a French dude. Um, the best of his work might not be in America, but like the place where I know him is not a good place. It's um, it's it's Wonder Woman comics drawn by a guy called Lee Motor, and they they're ugly comics. But um, he he inked that stuff, and I actually, you know, this might even be you know food for thought or whatever for inkers out there. Like choose your jobs because I, those comics are so bad that like his name was box office poison to me. Yeah. And uh seeing his stuff shows up in my explore page. Like it gets it gets a lot of juice from the Instagram algorithm. And 
if one of those show up, like I almost have to just mute it so that it never shows up because I'll just fucking watch it and then I'll go to his thing and just watch him ink yeah. a bunch. <laughs> and then once again, we, we should cut this. <laughs> we, t- we talked about it earlier, but uh, it is astonishing to me that that, that comic is um, so late in the run. Like I, I thought it, it happened much earlier. Cause, me too. Because Death was such a popular character. Like uh, it would stand to reason that they would just try to juice that early and often. But maybe there was a different Death miniseries. Maybe there was a couple. I, I, There's I'm, definitely I'm two. Ex- um, I forget what the other one is. So they, I don't know if it came first or not. Are they both B- Bachalo? Yeah, they are. And uh, I just I think they're really good looking. Interesting too that it's the same ink team. Um, you know, it's it's the same artistic team as uh, Gen, Gen X. So it was probably that first uh, death, if, if it was Bachalo, where he really had his raw talent, like you know his his regular drawing ability. Because Mark Buckingham kind of kind of um, sl- added slickness. Until tells of Spider-Man getting shout out. Shouts to Pat Olive, man. That's that's good looking stuff. And it looks like what's scanned here is a color guide. Yeah, it does look that way. But look at his work, dude. He's he, like he's a he's a solid fucking artist. Definitely tapping into the Steve Ditko mm-hmm. energy. Um, I bet there was like a corner box here because that definitely got cut off. Hundred percent. He taught me a lot of stuff. Like like his his original artwork is some of the first original artwork I've ever seen. It was at a uh, toy conventions in in Pittsburgh, and I showed him my submissions and shit. And he really um, beat some bad habits out of me in the course of just that conversation. You know, he drew a cylinder and drew drapery over top, and to show how it kind of like curved around the arms and things because like look at that he's good he's good at that right and um it really put some thoughts in into my mind and also that was a period where like i had all, all my bad ticks from like uh liking uh extreme studios and stuff <laughs> and his whole thing was like draw as many lines as you want but you have to know why you're putting them there there ha- it has there has to be a reason yeah. and and i i internalized that immediately I, he was so clear like if he if he hasn't done teaching that's a sadness because he he was so clear, so articulate, and, and changed my process near immediately. Hitman One, that's going to be something of a of a hit comic. Uh, you know, it's where Preacher goes dark, Hitman goes goes light, in a way. And I I, I never collected the, the issues because to be honest, I wasn't feeling John McRae's art as a kid, but you know, at some IDES sales, I grabbed you know five six TPBs of you know the first. I've never read any of it. I've always been kind of curious about it, but never read any of it. Some interesting indie books here, like Kane, the Paul Grist crime book. I really like it. Uh, Scud, Disposable Assassin, uh, self-published, you know, black and white book. Um, Monkey Man and O'Brien special. You know, that's Art Adams, so not that indie. But you kind of see, like, where comics are in this, like, bizarre place, you know, as to what's being even highlighted here. I don't know that that... I've never seen that Monkey Man O'Brien special, but I'm guessing that it might just be a collection of the backups. It's either backups or it was a Dark Horse Dark, and Dark Presents. Horse Presents. One yeah, or the yeah, other. Yeah. But maybe both. Because, I mean, it was backups, and then there were the black and white Dark Horse Presents with, like, the big turtle kaiju and shit. Right. Very cool looking. That yellow bastard is starting up. That's That makes me realize, like, we need to do, um, we need to go through Big Fat Kill on a Sunday vid, and we need to do, uh, that yellow, we, like, the, there's still some good Sin City for us to mine. I have never read. I quit reading to Helen back, mm-hmm. and uh, it's. I'm curious to read it. So yeah, yeah. I do have them all. Let's let's get it up to, to to speed, man. It's not hard to do them all. That might be it, Jimmy. Like, there's a Paul Chadwick piece at the end. 
<laughs> they show the they show <laughs> <laughs> all eyes are on Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld see once again this is your Marvel DC crossover I think they're in the middle of this at this point and like I said it was the number one book this year and the previous year one of the retailers said that he ordered uh extra heavy on this one and still sold out on the first day I could have sold 200 more copies not a lot of coverage for a book that seems to be successful that's true and and uh, by the barcode you could see I, I picked up the first issue of that um, at Giant Eagle. It was the, the spinner racks still exist at this time. Yeah, I think you're right about that being uh, everything in there. So race through the price guide and uh, jump to the end. Wizard profile of Paul Chadwick. And uh, we've looked at concrete. So, yes. you know, go check that out by all means. I think it's one of the, the great black and white 80s not superhero kind of superhero superhero books. adjacent absolutely yeah good good way to phrase that and uh really nice good looking book i didn't realize did uh storyboards for peewee's big adventure that's a pretty good resume on, on, on in my world that's a pretty good resume yeah. uh, line item there and uh talks about like missing comics wanting to do comics does a version of concrete and started at san diego comic-con in 83 shopping it around gets no interest in it but sticks with it and then 85 gets eight offers so one of those stories of perseverance that uh i think is probably pretty common with comic book makers i think it's the only way yes and, and i think i think as a as a comic maker like if you don't have that tenacity like this just ain't the deal for you and, and there's been plenty of guys who like come through and they don't have that tenacity but it doesn't mean that you're going to fail in life you know that's steve purcell or somebody like that where you just get a different kind of job that's very creative elsewhere and uh that concludes Wizard 55. Good stuff to talk about in this issue, man. You know? It's um, it's a heck of a kickoff for 1996. You know, we're still at the beginning of that year, and there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of big happenings. So funny, man. I'm just a freshman this year, dude. In high school. Did you have a sense at that time, Ed, that, like, stuff isn't working right in comics? Not at all. Like, I, I'm, glad, I'm glad you brought that piece up at the end, because, because uh, as you were talking about, like, the doldrums and how all these people were talking that... That was so lost on me. I was so ignorant to it. I was ignorant to it through the time that you and I were, first became friends and 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 uh, doing our comics and stuff like that. Um, the you know whatever like lack of success I had at that time, I just attributed to my lack of talent. I, so I didn't think about market or anything like that. And I'm actually very glad about that because maybe I wouldn't have. It, this you know being a cartoonist has been my life's dream like i never wanted to be anything else so just doe-eyed optimism youthful naivete whatever you want to call it but i am very glad that i was very so ignorant of um of of all of that and even even into art school you know i was doing i was doing independent comics looking work that was getting a great response from my teachers and in, in, in the administration uh, and they're like, listen, the way to make it, you want to do this kind of thing, you got to figure out how to buy time to make that because you're not going to make any money on that stuff, that independent kind of comic. You got to do some mainstream stuff. You got to do illustration work, all this kind of thing to, to supplement that, um, you know, and, and for, for five years, that was the case. But then after Hip Hop Family Tree, um, that's just not the case. Like even doing big ad campaigns for Nike, designing a Adult Swim cartoon show, 
the five biggest checks I've still have gotten are all from Fantagraphics. So. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember things at the time being conscious of it. You know that, that things were going wrong. Like at some point, it does become apparent, but I don't know when that would have been exactly. It was. You know, some of it for me is like I'm a freshman in college, and it's just comics weren't number one at that point. Like there was a lot going on around me mm -hmm. and I could still get comics that I wanted. And the stuff I wanted was indie at that point. So yeah. they were never flourishing <laughs> as long as they were still available. It seemed like business as usual. And, uh, you know, in my mind, it's like, I'm bored with the Marvel image stuff, but maybe that boredom is because like, they just weren't doing good work at the time. You know, it wasn't that I had grown out as much as it was like, it's in the crapper and that and that's and that's what i was absolutely conscious of uh that that like these superhero comics they're just not hitting like when i was a little kid i would have a sense of satisfaction from the stuff and that was completely lost yeah. on me it was a good thing for my reading palette because i started to read way more novels and uh graduated to prose a whole lot and the the good feelings that I got from reading a comic came from the indies, specifically the Fantagraphics stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so like, that's what I was like holding on to because I was getting that, that, that good sense of completion from reading Fresh Love and Rockets or whenever an eight ball would come out or a hate would come out. Um, at this now, like that's the ju juice I'm getting from manga, you know, for the past 10 years right. is, uh, that's, what's giving me the good vibes man all right and most recently comic strips are are really filling that niche for me man uh i'm good to go if you are yes k favors like follow subscribe to the youtube channel hit the bell so that we can no notify you when new vids are available jimmy and i are going to heroes con this year in a couple of weeks come see us come say hi cartoonist k fabe comic book christmas in july is going to be the last saturday in july creators Take some of your comps, put them in your free little lending library in your neighborhood. Kayfabers, I know you have doubles. Stack those things up. Go through your long boxes, stack up your doubles, and, and share those things in the free little lending libraries in your neighborhood. Uh, we have a Patreon where uh, people at the King Kayfaber level, they're kicking it with us right now in the chat. Uh, they get access to all the videos that we put out uh, well ahead of anybody else. And uh, the books, the uh, videos are brought to you by the books that we make. Jimmy, what do you have out there? Street Angel, Princess of Poverty is my next big release from Image Comics. This will be out later this summer, collecting all of the Street Angel comics that are not in Street Angel Deadly Girl Alive. Street Angel Deadly Girl Alive is back in print from Image Comics. So if you missed that, these are the best comics I ever made. They're available now wherever comics are bought and sold. Hulk Grand Design is available in a big, oversized, fluorescent green, beautiful package. Out there now while supplies last, along with Plain Jane's, the first young adult graphic novel. And you can join me on patreon.com slash jimrug and see my latest comics uh, being serialized there. Two big books this year. Uh, Hip Hop Family Tree Omnibus is going to be out for the holiday season. Uh, it's going to collect the four volumes uh, of Hip Hop Family Tree. There's going to be 140 extra pages. Uh, lots of new artwork has been done for this book and lots of stuff that is not in those first uh, four books. Uh, there is also going to be the X-Men Grand Design Trilogy trade paperback coming to you in time for the holidays. We're going to take all of uh, my X-Men comics and put them inside of a uh, you know, 250-page uh, trade paperback from, from Marvel Comics. Once again, in time for the holidays. And um, the current focus right now 
is Red Room Crypto Killers. That's the third season of Red Room Comics. Issue one is out. Uh, issue two is impending. Uh, Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit is the name of the game. These are the best comics I've made to date. I hope you support them. There's going to be four issues in total. And there's no trade paperback this year. So if you want to read it, scoop up uh, these single issues. Jimmy, what else do we have going on? Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts, merchandise, hats, fanny packs, stickers, and lots more at our spread shop. That link is also under this video. All great ways to support the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel. Give them those marching orders and we'll be on our way. Read more comics.